Lord, you are the God of new life. And Lord, as we gather here on this spring morning, flowers in bloom, may we remember that you bring us and your story is one of death and resurrection. And that rhythm that you've instituted in the world, may we live into it this morning and throughout our lives. We love you, Jesus. In your name I pray, amen. amen. Would you remain standing as we go before the Lord this morning? We'll start off with a prayer one last time. Prayer of Shema. It comes out of the text uh, Deuteronomy 6. It's a prayer that's prayed every day, a couple times a day. Uh, if you are a, uh, if you are a, a, a good Jew, uh, and you pray this prayer as a prayer of dedication to say, Lord, with all of my heart, with all my soul, with all my might, I'm going to serve you today. Uh, so this is prayed typically in the morning and in the evening to, again, remind yourself recommitment before we spend our day or for us before we go to the Word this morning to remind ourselves of whose we are. Uh, so say it after me. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God, the Lord alone. Love the Lord your God. With all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. We read the resurrection story today in John chapter 20. We're going to read some of the texts around that. We want to give that story some context this morning. So we're actually going to do a smattering of verses. We finished up our Exodus series. We've been doing that through, uh, through this time together from January to March. We kind of finished up and wrapped that up on Good Friday. If you were there Good Friday, we did a Seder meal, sort of a Passover meal to kind of finish up Exodus. And now we're going to read the resurrection. We're going to read the death and resurrection of Jesus. So we're going to start in Mark 8, but then, like I said, jump around in John 19 and 20. These are a smattering of verses we're going to look at this morning. It says this, Jesus and his disciples went on to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. But what about you, Jesus asked, who do you say I am? Peter answered, you are the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. He then began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But when Jesus turned and looked at his disciples, he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have the mind, the mind, the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him, along with his disciples, and said, Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their lives will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. Now let's jump a little bit into John here and uh, kind of give that resurrection story some context. Carrying his own cross, Jesus went out to the place of the skull, which in Aramaic is called Golgotha. There they crucified him and with him and with him two others, one on each side of, and Jesus in the middle. Later, knowing that everything had been finished, and so that the scriptures would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. A jar of wine vinegar was there, so they soaked a sponge in it, put the sponge on the stalk of the hyssop plant, and lifted it to Jesus' lips. When they had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. With that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. Now, jumping ahead past the resurrection, one last scripture. 
On the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and sighed. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As the Father has sent me, I am sending you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. There are two reasons why this morning is significant. We've mentioned already this is the last Sunday as Renewal Church, and that's significant. There's, there's something holy about that and set apart about this day as we gather one last time together as Renewal Church. But obviously the bigger one, the one that should get the prime uh, focus, is that it's Easter Sunday. And the death and resurrection of Jesus is the central element to the Christian faith. It is the foundation that everything else stands on. Paul, in his writing to the Corinthian church in chapter 15, he states, this is of first importance, he says. He wants to make sure that we get this, that everything else builds on the foundation of this tax. He said, this is of first importance, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day. If Christ had not been raised, then our preaching is useless and your faith is useless. I mean, he gets, he gets right to the point here. He says, listen, if we are not going to affirm the death and resurrection of Jesus, if that's not on the table, then this entire faith that we have is completely useless. Your preaching is useless, our preaching is useless, and your faith is useless. So what we recognize when we gather here on this day is that if you do not believe in the life, death, and the resurrection of Jesus, then you are not a Christian. You are, you just, you, it's, it, it's the bedrock of everything we believe in. It's useless. Your faith is completely useless. My preaching is completely useless if it's not embedded into the bedrock of the death and resurrection of Jesus. Now preach about it, Brian. <laughs> now when you attempt to tackle the most important aspect of the most influential movement of the one true Lord of all, naturally you're going to run into some problems. And one of the biggest difficulties is just information overload. There is so much that can be said about the death and resurrection of Jesus. Countless books have been written about what the death and resurrection means and accomplishes. So what we need to ask on any given Easter Sunday, because my guess is this is not your first rodeo of Easter Sundays, what we need to ask year after year as we come back to Easter Sunday is what aspect, what element for us at this time and this place is going to be most helpful for us to reflect on in the ginormous aspect that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. What facet, perhaps if, if we were to say that the death and resurrection is just this beautiful diamond, the, the crown jewel of our faith, what facet, if you turned that diamond around, you saw all the multi-dimensional facets of what this gospel, this death and resurrection mean, what facet should we choose to look on today, this week, this year, as Easter Sunday comes around again? 
And as I said, Renewal Church finds itself in a unique transition and moment right now. So I think would be helpful as we look at that diamond that is the gospel, that is the death and resurrection of Jesus. I think the facet that's most helpful would be spend some time exploring how Jesus patterned a rhythm of death and resurrection in our own lives. My main point this morning will be the death and resurrection of Jesus is not just some abstract idea that we believe in that gets us to heaven someday. The death and resurrection is the, uh, is the rhythm that Jesus taught, embodied, and then commissioned us to live every single day. This rhythm of death and resurrection. Let's take a look at that. Let's go back to Mark 8 for a second. We, I want to look at a few elements here because this is a fascinating little story between Jesus and Peter. In the Mark 8 text we just read, I want to read it again so we can get our minds wrapped around this. Jesus and his disciples went to the villages around Caesarea Philippi. On the way, he asked them, who do people say that I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and others one of the prophets. But what about you? Jesus said, what do you say I am? Peter answered, you're the Messiah. So Peter gets that part right. He's going to get the next part wrong. But he got that part right. Okay, good. You're the Messiah. Jesus warned them not to tell anyone about him. Then he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests, and the teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this, and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Now, let's think about that for a second. Peter has just admitted, has voluntarily expressed that I believe you are the Messiah. I believe that you are, and again, if you're a good Jew like Peter is, he, is, he is, comes from a long line of, of Jews and Israelites all the way back to the Exodus that we've been talking about for 13 weeks. The story is, is that there are going to be all sorts of kingdoms that are going to oppress you and make, you, make things difficult for you. But one day, the Messiah is going to come. And he's going to make everything right. And so Peter, think about it, has given up his entire life, has given up his entire livelihood, has followed this man everywhere he goes, has witnessed this man perform many miracles, seen the power of who he is. And he's come to this critical point where Jesus goes, okay, who do you say I am? And Peter uh, aces the test and says, you are the Messiah. And then Jesus goes, good, now let me tell you what the Messiah is going to do. I'm going to suffer, I'm going to be persecuted, and then I'm going to die. And Peter has the chutzpah to say, mm, yeah, I don't think that's what the Messiah does. I mean, can you imagine that? Can you imagine, again, if Jesus were here this morning, I got sick and Jesus was walking around the earth and he said, hey, I'll volunteer. I'll come to Renewal Church and I'll preach. And he gets up there and he says, who do you people say I am? And you go, you're, Jesus, you're the Messiah. And he goes, good, I'm going to suffer, I'm going to die. And you all go, yeah, I, I don't think that's true. I mean, the gall that Peter has <laughs> to actually stand before him, pull him aside even. Like, hey, Jesus, can I, can I talk to you? Yeah, come over here. What are you doing? This is not what it's supposed to be. I, I just, it blows my mind, Peter, sometimes, that he has uh, <laughs> uh, the spine for something like that. 
The world would reject them, persecute them, enslave them, but the Jew believed, what Peter believes, is that someday, the great hope for the Jew is that the Messiah would come, a conquering king, a military leader, who would punish evildoers and reclaim the glory of Israel. That's what the Messiah was supposed to do in their minds. Jesus comes out of the scene making all sorts of claims of this Messiahship, and Peter has given up everything in order to follow him. Peter is ready. He's got his sword by his side. We know that because Good Friday, he cuts a guy's ear off to defend Jesus. He's ready to fight. He's ready. Let's do this, Jesus. Let's kick some butt. Let's go for it. And instead, Jesus describes what he's about to do in terms of suffering and weakness and death. It actually might, makes a little more sense that Peter might be a little annoyed by that. He's like, well, that's not, that's not according to the plan. That's not according to my Bible. That's not according to the scripture. Like, no, no, that's not how it's supposed to go down, Jesus. And he rebukes the Messiah. It's like, that's not what a Messiah does. A Messiah is supposed to come and free us and kick butt and take names. That's what the Messiah is supposed to do. And, and you're not doing that. Maybe Peter's rebuke isn't as far-fetched as we thought. But the story continues. But when Jesus turned and looked at the disciples, he rebuked Peter back. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples and said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves and take up their cross and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for the gospel will save it. You see, Peter does not have the mind, have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. And, and these human concerns are our are, are human nature. It's written into who we are as a people. It's the value system that does not obey or follow or recognize the way of God. It's these larger world systems that live for power and glory and empire and what they can do. Build what they can perceive, what they can, what they can muster up. This is, what, this is what the human concerns are. This is what our human condition tells us is valuable. What you can build, what you can achieve, what you can, how you can be, get ahead in life. It goes all the way back to Genesis. It goes all the way back to a tower. The Tower of Babel. This is why there's this critical moment where the human achievement gets to a point where they say, we can do whatever we want. We will build whatever we can accomplish. In Genesis 11, verse 4. Then they said, this is the Tower of Babel narrative. Then they said, come, let us build ourselves a city with a tower that reaches to the heavens so that we may make a name for ourselves. So that we can make a name for ourselves. Let's figure out what we can build to make a name for ourselves. This is the human concern. This is what we want in our lives. This is how we think. And so when Peter is sitting next to Jesus and Jesus goes, Hey, I'm the Messiah and I'm going to suffer. And I'm going to live in weakness and I'm going to die. This goes against every human impulse we have. And Peter goes, no, that's not what we've hoped for. We've hoped for power. We've hoped for might. We've hoped for strength. We've hoped for a Messiah that's going to come and wipe the world of all of our enemies. 
And Jesus says, ah, Peter, that's human concerns. That's the, that's the concerns of, of, of humans. Yeah, you don't have the mind of God right now. You have the mind of it. Then he brings people together, right? What does he say? If you want to gain your life, anyone who wants to receive their life must lose it. This, the exact almost opposite of what we value. Hierarchy. We value hierarchy. Who's faster? Who's stronger? Who has more power? Who can conquer the other? Who has more money? Who is smarter? Who is better? Who can build the biggest thing? Years ago, I went on a vacation with some extended family, and it was the last extended family I ever did. <laughs> I said, I'm done after this one. Because one night, my aunt and her adult daughter had the biggest blowout I've ever seen. It's like this was coming to a boil, and it, you just all it took was being out in the Adirondacks and sitting them together for like five days, and it just kind of like exploded at that point, right? Like a bottle you shake, and you just need that little, and it, and it explodes, right? Doors slamming, yelling, accusations, name-calling the works. For some, a startling deviation. For others, just another day vacationing with family. I don't know how I ended up in the middle of it, but when things calmed down a bit, I became the mediator between the two. And there were many different dynamics that played into this, but at the heart of it were two people that didn't want to give up authority and control. They were the two matriarchs of the family, the, the older matriarch and the daughter who is coming up the ranks. And value systems were beginning to collide. They were like two boxers who took turns jabbing at each other in retaliation. And I couldn't help but think, the only way that this boxing match ends is if somebody lays down their gloves. It's the only way. The only way there ever, when there's a confrontation, is one person humbling themselves and taking the first step towards reconciliation, of putting their gloves down. But the problem with putting your gloves down is that typically what happens when you do that is you take a jab or two before they're willing to put their gloves down as well. That's usually what it takes, is someone putting their gloves down, and in their anger, the other person saying, yeah, well, oh, your defense are down. Bang, bang, bang. And you have to take a few hits before restoration and resolution comes to the matter. And neither one were willing to put down their gloves. and Be willing to take a few jabs, perhaps, to risk getting hit a few times. Not literally. They weren't literally physically fighting each other. But take a few licks in order for there to be new life in that relationship. Somebody had to get hit in order for new life to get. It's the way of the world. It's buying into a system that says strength comes from power and control and conquest. In reality, the weakest thing they could have done was respond in this way. Just keep punching. The thing that is much stronger is to be vulnerable, is to be honest, even apologize. They came at each other in a strength that was actually a weakness as opposed to a weakness that was actually great strength. 
There's a reason why Peter attempts to rebuke Jesus. The mystery of Christ is hard for us to grasp because our entire nature is oriented in the opposite direction. What Jesus does in coming to earth is reorienting a whole new understanding of death. It's a willingness to die so that we can live. Jesus comes and establishes a new kingdom, a new reality, a new pattern that says death is no longer weakness, surrender, and failure. And resurrection is no longer vague and distant and abstract. Rather, Jesus institutes a pattern, a rhythm that embraces death so that we might experience life. And if we are to enter the Christ pattern, if we are to give ourselves up, if we were to lay down our lives, if we were to take up our own cross, we would experience this new resurrection life, not just in the future, but right now. And our text this morning in John revealed that Jesus doesn't simply pronounce this new pattern, but he actually embodies it on our behalf. In John 19, we read, carrying his own cross, Jesus went to the place of the skull. There they crucified him and with him, and with him two others, one on each side and Jesus in the middle. Jesus went out bearing his own cross. The the very thing that he called the disciples to do in the Mark passage, now he's going to actually embody on our behalf. He bears his own cross. They crucify him. Now in the ancient world, this is the most terrible punishment, and it's always associated with shame and horror. It was so brutal that no Roman citizen could be crucified without the sanction of the emperor himself. They typically would strip you, beat you for further display of weakness. Then the victim would hang in the hot sun for hours, even days. And when you're crucified, you don't die of blood loss, you die of suffocation most of the time. The way that you hang, your diaphragm constricts, and you can't get yourself up and give yourself enough air as you become weaker and weaker and weaker. You can't quite get enough air to go on. And so to make matters even worse, the Romans would put a little footrest at the bottom to encourage you, to give you a chance to lift up, to encourage you when you didn't think you could go again, but you were at your last gasp of breath, to lift yourself up, to get you that next breath, to collapse again. It was actually, uh, it was actually a, a further form of torture because it encouraged the victim to keep going, to keep fighting, to keep reliving into the agony. Jesus displays ultimately the most ultimate horrific death to embody this reality that we must die so that we may live. Later, knowing that everything had been fulfilled, John says, and so that scripture would be fulfilled, Jesus said, I am thirsty. When he had received the drink, Jesus said, it is finished. And with that, he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. With his last dying breath, he says, it is finished. Not I am finished or we are finished, but it, it is finished. The word in the Greek was written on debt slips to someone who had paid off a loan. It is a word of completion, accomplishment, victory. Jesus is on the cross in the midst of ultimate public humiliation, pain, and suffering, actually declares victory. Easter is the great declaration that death does not have the final word. That death is not the end of the story. That Friday does not conclude 
without Sunday. Death and resurrection. And resurrection. There is death and resurrection. We die so that we may live. Jesus preaches it and then he embodies it. This is how the world works. Death leading to resurrection. Laying down your life. Humility. Weakness. Recognition that you are not God. This is the way forward so that you may live. Others will fight. Others will try to rely on their strength. Others will build and make a name for themselves. But if you fight that impulse, if you fight the human concern, and you think of the concern of God, this death, this willing death, will lead to life. Now I'm going to go do it for you. I'm going to lay down my life for you. Jesus teaches it. He embodies it. And then he commissions it. Our last passage. On the evening of the first day of the week, when the disciples were together, with the doors locked for fear of the Jewish leaders, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. After he said this, he showed them his hands and his side. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Again, Jesus said, Peace be with you. As, your fa- as the Father has sent me, now what? Now I am sending you. You go and do it too. Here, guys, here, look. Here's my hands. You see, this? You see them? Here, here's, my, here's my side. You see, you see what I did? See, I taught you it, and then I embodied it, and now you go do it too. You take up your own cross. You lay down your lives. You be willing to submit to whatever the Father has for you. And when you do that, when you die you will be raised from the dead. Death and resurrection. From that new life, Jesus enters, despite the fears and the locked doors, and shows his scars and says, now you do it too. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. For whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and for my gospel will save it. You see, friends, as we conclude here this morning, as we conclude eight or nine years here this morning, the Christ pattern works in this world in a very specific way. We die and we're resurrected. That is the heart of everything for us. Death and resurrection. We let go of the old in death so that we can receive and embrace the new in life. And it's written in every facet of our world. It's written into the fabric of the natural world. Days and seasons and vegetation. It's appropriate that Easter happens at springtime. We see in nature things die in winter and then they are resurrected. It's a pattern we actually see in our natural world. A seed goes into the ground and dies so that new life comes from it. Every day is a rhythm of that. The sun rises and sets. Death and resurrection. It's built into the natural world. It's written into the patterns of families. We've got some new babies here this morning and it's really great to see. But I know we experienced it, my wife and I, when we first had our first child. 
is that as, as beautiful as the new life is, it always comes with a cost, doesn't it? That's the thing they never tell you about kids, right? They go, it's beautiful and it's wonderful and it's great, but they never tell you about the sleepless nights. <laughs> they never tell, they, they, they mar- they'll joke about it, but they'll marginalize it, right? They'll never tell you, uh, oh yeah, like you don't really get free time anymore, there's no more, yeah, free time, that's cute. Okay, that's cool. Maybe you get a grandma or grandpa to watch you every once in a while. But, like, there is actually a lot that you as a couple have to lay down and die to in order for new life to come. I remember there was a time about three weeks into our beautiful baby girl where I was so tired that I said to Molly, I said, Molly, I would kill a man right now to get one night back like it used to be. I would, I would murder someone right now in my sleeplessness. I will murder someone in order to get one night back with you the way it used to be. You see, for new life to come, something intrinsically has to die. We're experiencing that even a little bit with our older kids. I'm very well aware of the fact that my 11-year-old has seven years left to go. And then I will lose her. I won't ultimately lose her, but something fundamental about our family will shift seven years from now. It's actually, I'm on a sabbatical this summer, and it's something I'm trying to process. I've got seven years left with my girl. But the the thing I I absolutely cannot do, the thing that would be most damaging and healthy is to keep her and to hold her and try not to let things change. No, I have to let her, she has to experience life. She's going to have to go, obviously guided by us, and we're not just going to throw her out, right, but guided, but she's going to have to go in order for new life for her and her family someday to be born. But in order for that to happen, something fundamental about our family right now will die. It's death and resurrection. It's the pattern of how the world works. It's written in our very nature. In Romans 8, Paul says that we put to death the deed of our body so that we may live. We have to die. Something fundamental about who we are, intrinsically written into our nature, our sinful nature, must die so that a resurrection work can happen some other place. We experience it in nature. We experience it in the patterns of our family. We experience it in our very own human nature. We experience it every day. Easter weekend is not simply a nice abstract idea that gets you into heaven, but it's how the world works. That difficult co-worker you have, will you enter the Christ pattern? Dying so that something might live. That humbling situation, will you enter the Christ pattern? That destructive impulse inside, will you enter the Christ pattern? The daily walk with Christ is saying, what cross do I bear today? Where do I need to die so that perhaps something new and beautiful and life could be formed from it? And friends, we're experiencing here at Renewal Church. There is a type of death that is happening here this morning. And the, the, the thing to do is not to ignore it or to say, or, or, or to, to minimize it or to say, no, that's, you know, like, it's fine. No, it's to embrace it. It's to embrace the death. Something fundamental is stopping and ending. And we must look at it, embrace it. And what's happening has resulted in tears and pain and heartache. The question will be for us. 
Will we embrace the new life-giving, resurrected thing that will happen from it? God will use, as you are sent out into this area, God will use you in mighty ways and bless churches. You will be the thing that that church has been waiting for. Whether it's I hope or it's another church, you will be the thing. If you embrace the Christ pattern, you will be the thing that says, we were right on the brink and we need that one last piece. And then you came. And then God sent us them. If we are to embrace the Christ pattern. Death and resurrection. The great hope of Easter is that the end of the story was not on Friday, but it was on Sunday. That the tomb is empty. That God is in the business of embracing death so that there can be life. That's written in every aspect of our nature. We go through the process of letting go and grieving and celebrating what has been so we can embrace and be open to the new resurrection thing that will go on. That's the Easter story. Again, not just a nice abstract thing that we believe that gets us to somewhere when we're dead, but the pattern that we live today and tomorrow and every day as we live for Christ. Let's invite the band back. It's been great to have the nice full band back here. Let's, let's celebrate that one more time because ultimately we celebrate that in communion. On this Easter morning, my prayer for you, my prayer for you truly, each one of you who have been here, whether you've been here just a few months like me or you've been here for eight years, my prayer is that you We'll embrace the death and resurrection of Jesus, not just as a nice abstract idea that gets you somewhere when you die, but that you will come to see that this is how the world works. And when you trust Christ, not just with the nice things in your brain, but actually enter into the pattern in your life with your emotions, with your sorrow, with your joy, with your whole life, all sorts of things become possible as we follow the example of the one who taught it and embodied it and then commissioned us to go and do it too. As the Father has sent me, so I send you. So we remember it ultimately. The ultimate symbol is in the death and the resurrection of Jesus through communion.